Welcome to Season 2, Episode 11 of Created for Connection, a podcast that explores the way we become isolated from one another, but how God moves us toward connection with Him and with each other. In this episode, we interview Dr. Trent Langhofer. Trent shares his powerful story of loss and addiction and how God met him in that place. We also discuss how the church interacts with those who are struggling in addiction, as well as what it looks like to begin to change, whether you're in an addiction currently or if you have any number of habits or distractions that are keeping you stuck. To everyone listening, we're glad you're here. Hey guys, welcome back to Creative for Connection. I'm your host, Kevin Shelby, and I'm here with Paul McMullen. Hey Paul, how's it going? Hey Kevin, I'm doing great. I like your jersey you're wearing today. Uh, thank you. I'm I'm still frustrated that prior to us hitting record, you did not know who I'm representing on my jersey. I just couldn't tell. You know, it's hard to see the number. Your arms are crossed. You know, I don't I don't know. Memphis no. is not a, as well known a team as the Dallas Mavericks, for example. It's well, just, I tested your knowledge on that. You didn't even know who 77 was on the Mavs. So that's not true. I was I playing, just, I was playing with you at that point. No, whatever. I know your team better than you do. I've been scouting all the teams to give reports to the Grizzlies. And by the way, number 12 for the Memphis Grizzlies is none other than Ja Morant. If you don't know who he is, you need to go look him up. Just look up Ja Morant highlights and also Ja Morant dunk. He has been named as having one of the greatest dunks in playoff history in the last game that we played. They play tonight, which is April the 29th, and they are going to knock the Timberwolves out of the series. So So when this episode comes out, May 29th, this will all be irrelevant. (laughs) (laughs) Kevin's good, Paul, at talking about irrelevant content if you haven't known him for very long that's one of his spiritual gifts man (laughs) thank you thank you guys and uh trent thanks for uh garnering a lot of you know support from our listeners (laughs) here it's a vote of confidence right (laughs) there you go no listen i wanted that to be on here so that it's marked it's a prophecy people understand my prophetic gifts Mm. are legit right like if anybody were to question that then we have a record of me projecting into the future what will happen. Mm-hmm. I had a dream last night. This is not a joke. I had a dream last night that I was shaking John Morant's hand because they had just beat the Timberwolves. So it's going to happen. I've got full confidence. Hey, did you ever give Anthony Hardaway a free counseling session? Uh, no, I didn't. He probably needed it after that loss in the first round but yeah yeah no i i never actually got in touch with him my friend never came through for me so (laughs) if your if your march madness bracket was a sign of prophecy skill then (laughs) hey i won i won my bracket between Uh, you and your wife Now, Melissa, Melissa would have toasted them. Kevin plays against himself a lot. 
just to increase the odds of success. Yeah. Both of my brackets were good. One was better than the other. There you go. So lest we end up having our listeners think that this has become a sports podcast, we should probably move into why we're really here. And that is to interview uh, one of my great friends and um, somebody that, you know, I respect tremendously uh, most of the time. Uh, no, really all of the time. Uh, he's as long as I'm a- rooting for the Grizzlies, right? That's right. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> as long as you're not dogging on me and you're rooting for the Grizzlies. I, but I am excited for us to interview on this season finale. Um, one of my dear friends, Dr. Trent Langhofer. Um, Trent is currently working as the director of the counseling center at Colorado Christian University. He also is a pastor at a at a church there in uh, Colorado Springs. Trent has done amazing work throughout his life, but Trent has a story and uh, he's going to share that story with us today. And we're going to talk about, um, we're specifically going to focus on the, the idea of addiction. So I think that if you've ever had somebody in your life that has struggled with that, if you're a minister who's working with people uh, dealing with addictions, if you're a counselor uh, counseling people with addictions, uh, Trent Langhofer is someone who understands it both from a personal and a professional perspective. So we are super excited to have you on, Trent. And you want to just say a few words of introduction of, for, of yourself? Yeah. yeah, super good to get to be with you guys this morning, Kevin. Right. Like we were talking this morning, we've known each other for well over a decade. So a lot of life has happened uh, in that time. And God's had each of us on really unique journeys. So you're right. I am a. Uh, I am the director of a counseling center uh, connected to Colorado Christian University here in Colorado Springs. I'm a professor of uh, counseling in CCU's graduate counseling program, also here in the Springs, teaching pastor at an awesome church here in Colorado Springs called Trace Church, on the board of Springs Rescue Mission, one of the largest rescue missions uh, in the state of Colorado and just doing some incredible work towards uh, directed towards chronically homeless uh, adult men and women on the on the board of Ascent Health, um, which is a, a healthcare company that provides services to underserved children in Memphis and all over the state of Louisiana. So, just have been given really really cool opportunities uh, over the course of my career, and absolutely love what I get to do. Um, and so just, just thankful, thankful for connections like you guys and just uh, the, the network of the kingdom of God itself. So yeah, excited to get to share a little bit of my story today. Yeah, and uh, Trent has a few claims to fame. The first, the first one being, so Trent, what, Trent and I both lived in Monroe, Louisiana. Actually, Paul, I don't know if you knew this, Trent, Paul lived in Monroe, Louisiana, uh, not oh the, my goodness! Yeah, not okay. at the same time as us, but he when he was younger, he he went and he used to work at Camp Shioka, and so there's a lot of of paths that have crossed there. But um, but most people know Monroe, West Monroe, Louisiana for the Duck Dynasty folks, and uh, Trent was actually on the season finale of the first season of Duck Dynasty. If you go back. 
and you check it out, you can see him. He leads them on the ropes course there. And um, I was a little frustrated they didn't pick me to run that episode with them. I thought I would have been a better choice, but Trent is better looking than me. So I think well, that's I, I was just going to say the camera treats you better than it's ever treated me, Kev. So uh, <laughs> they were scraping the bottom of the barrel with me. I'll tell that story real quick. So correct. Uh, when I moved to Monroe, West Monroe to finish my degree, uh, we we were directed by some dear friends of ours to to begin attending the church that they attended. Didn't have any idea that's where they attended. Our first Sunday at the church uh, was Duck Commander Sunday. So every year they um, asked uh, Phil Robertson to speak, and you know he was full camo talking about uh, the gospel. And on Duck Commander Sunday, the whole church comes in head to toe camo. And most people have their face painted and lots of people had duck calls. So it's my wife and I's first Sunday at the church. We've got a, a 18 month old and like a two month old. And I'm basically in a suit. My wife is in a, a dress and, and we were like in our Sunday best. We walked through the doors of the church and it's a sea of camo. And Phil Robertson literally is up on the uh, stage behind the pulpit blowing a duck call and I look at my wife and she looks at me and we're originally from Kansas and she says uh, babe we're definitely not in Kansas and I was like you're right so really developed just some rich friendships with that family it, it's a wonderful family the Robertsons are just through and through people that love Jesus and love other people and um man what a what a treat just to get a front row seat to their ministry and um the development of their show so that's right i get a call the night before the season one finale from jeff robertson and he was like trent we sort of had this idea and um some things have changed we're going to need your help would you be willing to be on the show and i was like jeff there's not a lot i wouldn't do to be on the show, man. Like, tell me when and where, and I'll be there. I'll carry water. I'll hold a boom mic. It's, yeah, I don't care. And so, yeah, long story short, I ended up being on the show. I've never been more nervous about anything in my entire life. Uh, maybe marrying my wife, uh, but other than those two moments, have never been that nervous. And it was just a lot of fun. So, again, just God showing up. Uh, just normal, uh, broken guy, a lot of favor in life. It was a lot of fun. Well, that that's actually what I remember is thinking, man, he looks really nervous. I would have been a lot more cool, calm and collected. That's my, right. That's, you know, that's what I thought as I was driving up, what would Kevin do <laughs> in this moment? You know, Kevin, Dr. Kevin Shelby, how would he be thinking? What would his presentation of self? That helped a lot uh uh that helped me overcome some significant barriers I'm, I'm so glad to know that i i helped produce your emmy award nominee <laughs> right right that's right my 15 there. minutes yeah that's right best best supporting best supporting of the supporting actor right right, right. not yeah. an extra an extra to the extras yeah there you uh, go it was a it was a critical role marquee really yeah, it yeah that, that's right. what set the season that i mean that season was amazing that's, no Trent yeah. did awesome and you were recently on their podcast right yeah was on their podcast you know we we uh have known each other for a decade and done a lot of ministry together 
and really are just just great friends. And so um, they've been uh, always just willing to give me a platform to kind of share my uh, story and just 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 hopefully uh, inspire people in ways that maybe help them connect more deeply to Jesus and help them connect more deeply to other people and it's just been an honor. Man, that's awesome, Trent. I, I, I love those guys. I, I can remember um, Bible study at camp uh, with Jason Robertson, Jace, and uh, uh, just a one of a, a unique family oh, <laughs> with a huge For influence sure. on people. Yeah. Um, so I, I love I love this connection, and so I'm I'm really curious because I have not gotten to hear a lot of your story yet. You and Kevin know each other really well. And so um, I know it, it's not like a full biography here session here, but to, where would where would you like to start and just sharing a little bit about what you want to share about today and your story? I'll share maybe the most interesting way to start would be to kind of talk about how my past and present sort of collided when I moved to Monroe, West Monroe. So um, moved to Monroe, West Monroe in 2010. My beautiful bride, Kirsten, and I uh, followed God's leading um, to what at the time we felt like was the middle of nowhere. And after uh, living there 10 years, we realized it really is kind of the middle of nowhere. Uh, so we uh, go to White's Ferry Road Church, and uh, the one of the two lead pastors at the time uh, was Alan Robertson. He and Mike Kellett, two mentors of mine, two of my best friends, just developed a relationship with me. It's a very welcoming church. And being a new family in town, they really uh, made a point to connect with us and make us feel welcome. And so to back up like uh, uh, almost 10 years prior uh, I had a really hardcore struggle with drugs and alcohol. I'll, I'll tell a little bit more about that in just a minute. But one of the treatment centers, one of the eight uh, times I was in treatment, I had an awesome counselor who just happened to be married to Alan Robertson's best friend. And so my counselor, who was married to Alan Robertson's best friend, heard that I was uh, in Monroe, West Monroe, and Alan heard that I knew his best friend's wife. And so one day Alan calls and is like, there's this uh, young man in our town who says that you know him. And she hesitates and is like, well, yeah. And Alan says, uh, we're thinking about asking this guy to join our teaching team uh, at church. And so Alan said, uh, when he when he said that, there was this long pause, and she just starts sobbing. And um, he ends up going, "Are you are you okay?" And and she says, "What you just said is a miracle." And so that that moment is kind of the moment that I think uh, uh, helped uh, the church in West Monroe that that we ended up do a ministry app for almost a decade, kind of understand, you know, really how much mercy and grace God has poured out on my life and what a, a miracle uh, in a lot of ways um, my story kind of is. So that was a cool moment to back up further. And I'll kind of start from the beginning um, uh, again, from Kansas, 
uh, born into, you know, what from all external appearances seem like a great family, you know, birth father kind of in ministry, getting an advanced degree, uh, mom uh, in ministry, uh, very talented musician. Um, and I'm the oldest of three boys. And so uh, shortly after my uh, youngest brother was born, um, my mom was made aware that my birth father was having an affair um, and had had multiple affairs uh, with other men. And so when she realized that it was just this cataclysmic, you know, nuclear explosion in my family of origin and, and she rightfully so uh, decided to get me and my brothers out of that situation. And so, um, one of the most painful uh, parts of my story is uh, the attachment trauma that, you know, uh, happened as a result of uh, his affairs and the divorce and then his abandonment, you know, of me and my brothers. And um, yeah, just one feature of that that I've worked through over the years is that you know, ultimately he chose other men over my brothers and I. And so that's, that's been something that's taken a while to unpack, uh, which has been complex. Brent, um, for people that are, uh, understand the words attachment that, that you're referring to and can get a bit of a picture of why, uh, I mean, obviously why that was an issue for you but maybe don't know anything about attachment theory. Can you share a little bit more about what, what kind of healthy attachment uh, would look like and versus when, when people have unhealthy attachment? Yeah, so this is kind of the uh, 10,000 foot description I give in contexts like this. Um, kids who are underconnected to a primary caregiver uh, can be diagnosed with a medical diagnosis called failure to thrive. And what that means is that uh, infants can have adequate food, adequate shelter, and adequate hygiene, and still uh, uh, be underweight, uh, chronically ill, and have extremely uh, slow rates of development. And if failure to thrive is profound enough, it can be a life-threatening uh, diagnosis that ultimately is fatal. So here's what's profound about that, Paul. What I just said indicates that as vital to life as oxygen, food, hygiene, and shelter is human connection for infants. What we used to think in my field is that the need for connection diminished over time and that ultimately when people became adults and self-sufficient you know they didn't need connection as much if at all and the literature in the last 40 years actually suggests that's not true and that the need for connection and how essential it is to life doesn't change over time what changes are the symptoms that arise as a result of chronic disconnect and so, yeah, I would say attachment, and this is an oversimplification, is one person's attunement to another person's actual lived experience, especially in terms of their thoughts and feelings.
Man, Trent, what a what a beautiful way to say that, you know. And and so I look at your story where you, you know, kind of reflecting back on what you just described happening, and you're missing that that primary caregiver attachment to your father, which we could also talk about all the studies that have been done with connection with father and you know, all, I mean, the importance of that, but nonetheless, that really important segment of your life goes away. Correct. Almost instantaneously from what I know about your story. And, um, and so then what, what was the fallout of that? What happened following that experience? Yeah. And this is what else is a challenge, you know, like, uh, attachment trauma and other varieties of trauma cause, an extraordinary amount of emotional pain. And so sometimes when I talk about this, um, I, I, I share that our bodies are designed by God in a way to seek pain relief instinctively and reflexively, right? So you touch a hot stove and your body's been designed by God instinctively and reflexively to pull your hand away from that hot stove. You don't even have to have a conscious thought about it. And so we kind of get uh, the sense of how to relieve physical pain from an early age, because this side of heaven, we experience a lot of that. But when I ask students or churches or uh, lay professionals or even other professionals, how do you compulsively and instinctively and reflexively seek emotional pain relief? It's silent. And the answer to that is, and I'm kind of asking a trick question, Our brains don't know how to relieve emotional pain until they know it. And so um, the the emotional pain uh, uh, children and even young adults endure activates this belief-seeking mechanism in their brain. And their brain is seeking a way to relieve that pain until the moment it finds a way to relieve it. Hopefully, that's in the context of deeply connected relationships with primary or secondary caregivers, right? And I am asked the right kinds of questions or someone's attuned enough to me to notice maybe what they sense could be some underlying pain and they seek to provide me with some comfort. And I certainly had lots of that as a child, but um, at a young age, used drugs And in that moment, a powerful uh, learning experience occurred, uh, and my brain connected pain relief with substance use. How how young were you whenever you started using drugs? Yeah, so that's an important part of the story, too. At 10 years old, I was in the fourth grade, and I was walking to school, and uh, on the corner of my school, there was a gal standing in her driveway, probably uh, high, who offered myself and a fifth grade friend of mine who was walking to school with me, a bag of weed. And so we didn't know a lot about it. Uh, We tried to roll the first joint I ever rolled in a Tootsie Roll Pop wrapper, which is wax paper, and it doesn't burn. Which is kind of funny, you know, considering, but when you think about a 10-year-old, you know, in his friend's backyard with a bag of weed trying to roll a joint with wax Tootsie Roll Pop paper, 
it's a it's a good snapshot into that moment. You know, I was very young, very vulnerable, uh, in an immense and extraordinary amount of pain, and um, not conscious of this, but desperately seeking emotional pain relief. And so we figured it out uh, shortly thereafter. And uh, that set my life on a trajectory of just agony and pain and misery. Really, really unfortunate situation. One of the things, Trent, that I, I talk a lot about with you know, my students and with people that I work with in addiction is the importance of understanding that just as you said, your brain doesn't know until it knows. Another really important component to that is the part of your brain that you're, that you're alleviating is the most primitive part of your brain. It doesn't have moral thought behind it. Correct. And, it's, and, and so when, when that pain is alleviated, that part of your brain goes after seeking that over and over again, not because you're an immoral person, but because now it's like, this is the fix. This is what, this is what's taking care of my issue. And it really isn't until that part of your brain sees whatever that thing is, as a threat that you're going to find the motivation to change. So it's not a moral, we're, we're not talking about something that's a real, that's connected to morality. That's why a fourth grader who picks up a joint and starts smoking it, it fills a need that there is no other way that they could find the same type of relief. And so I just wanted to make that point that like the church and people in general have treated addiction in a way sometimes that has, um, I think, created dissonance between those who struggle with addiction and their ability to be known. And that's really mm. something that I think we need to highlight here. Yeah, I was just going to throw in that that what you just said that that this is not the moral part of the brain that's reasoning what to do whether this is right or wrong this is the this is the is is this the uh, fight or flight kind of response area what well, you said brainstem area that yeah. is is medicating that pain um and yet if we wrap this around uh the concept of shame like i can't believe you did that i can't believe you're acting in, in that way isn't that just making the problem worse? Um, or, or maybe the, it's a question for Trent. How does that make the problem worse when you wrap shame around that behavior? Yeah. So again, I think um, my probably primary trauma, um, and I also have some uh, other trauma in my background. And so it just was this kind of compound effect. But but really, when I look back on my story, and I think this is why um, over the years, my approach has been helpful to the clients that I've served, is that my um, primary pain is the pain of disconnect. You know? And so when people came to me, uh, and this wasn't necessarily family or, or necessarily church, but sometimes it was, and did what you're saying, Paul, like, this is wrong. How could you do this? I can't believe you're doing this. Um, it isolated me further, which actually magnified the specific wounding I'm trying to seek relief from. And so it becomes this vicious cycle, you know, where um, I'm using that drug use uh, influences 
responses from people in my life that uh, compound the shame and pain that I feel that further isolates me from the thing that I need the very most, which is connection and connection at a lot of different levels. You know, the other thing that's tough too, yeah, as a person who's really struggled with addiction, there were a lot of times that I told myself, why do I keep doing this? I don't even like, at some point, um, I'm also miserable. And uh, yeah, just to share a little more of the story. So uh, start using drugs in the uh, fourth grade, transition to really, really hard drugs, as hard as you could get as a freshman in high school. By my junior year in high school, I dropped out to do drugs full time. And at that point, my parents decided like we got to try to get Trent some help. And so they spent a lot of money and a lot of time trying to connect me with those resources. And for the next like two and a half years, I'm in and out of treatment eight different times. And um, one of the last times I was in treatment was uh, in New Orleans. And when I was there, uh, there was a, another young lady that was there. So I was 17 at the time, too mature to stay with the kids, uh, but not maybe mature enough to be put with the adults, but the uh, treatment center elected to put me with adults. And it was a trauma treatment center. And it was uh, some of the most profound stories of trauma I've ever heard. And at 17, it was just really a tough place. And so they had me on suicide watch and I was sleeping in the uh, like atrium of this psych unit. And one morning I wake up and there's a, a gal about my age who's like uh, drawing a picture of me, which under normal circumstances would have been really strange, but didn't really feel that out of, out of bounds, you know, this place. Uh, so we strike up a conversation and she tells me a story of, of, just agony and misery and abuse. And she says, when she gets out, she's going to have to go back and live with her dad, who was selling her to uh, his friends and people in the town to support his, you know, lifestyle. And so we decided, you know, that we were going to escape from the psych unit. And one night during shift change, when all the nurses and doctors and uh, you know, other staff from the uh, psych unit were talking about clients. We grabbed clothes, some peanut butter crackers, and my guitar I had, and we snuck out a side door that we had kind of propped open, hopped the fence, and just ran. And so there was a point in time in my life where I was actually an escaped mental patient, gentlemen. Uh, so that's a good data point for your listeners uh, to gauge the type of guests you have on your show. You know, escaped mental patients, crazy people. Um, yeah, just kind of a, a really just overwhelming, chaotic part of the story. So Trent, you you escape as this mental patient. and. Um... I'd be interested to see to see what your diagnosis was at the time, you know, uh, but you're escaped with this young lady. And then, I mean, you can't go home, you know, what we're from Kansas. I'm in New Orleans at the time. Right. What, what did you do? What happened? Yeah. So we slept the first night under the I-10 bridge, uh, 
kind of on the north side of the French Quarter. And we woke up the next morning, our first day living out in the wild, and walked to a McDonald's. And, you know, yeah, there's just more than I can share this morning. But uh, God just consistently uh, keeps pursuing people in their pain. You know, and this is kind of a valley of the shadow of death season for me and I could just tell you story after story of God's provision even though it was still miserable here's one of these moments so uh, we go to a McDonald's I'm like look you stay here with the stuff I'll go we just wanted some water so I go in and I get two big cups of water and I bring it out and I'm I'm, I hand one to her and I'm sipping water I think we were both just really shell-shocked this guy comes up He's like, hey, are you guys homeless? And it occurred to me at that moment that the answer to that question actually was yes. And so I was like, yeah. And he said, well, I can take you to a uh, homeless shelter if you guys want to go. They have some resources there. So we kind of looked at each other and off the cuff. I was just like, yeah, kid you not. He says, cool. Why don't you guys get in my van? And it was the quintessential creeper van, right? No windows in the back one window in the front that was like painted over and he opens the sliding door and it's like some equipment there at the sketchiest uh most unsanitary unsafe looking van and we get in we actually get in that we didn't get kidnapped and like killed is a miracle the guy turned out to be an angel in disguise he had worked at the Superdome, was familiar with the homeless shelter for teens and runaways. It was about six blocks from the Superdome called the Covenant House, uh, which is a worldwide homeless shelter uh, for teenagers. And in New Orleans, it's located on Rampart Street, north side of the French Quarter, right next to Armstrong Park. And that became where we uh, you know, slept and ate powdered eggs and grits for breakfast and um, just barely found the resources to scrape by. Man, you know, and not everybody's been to New Orleans, so they don't know, but you, you don't want to be homeless in New Orleans. Like that's, <laughs> that's, that's, that's a rough way to go. And so like, I think it's a, it is a picture of just how low things got for you, right. Mm-hmm. To be, to find yourself in New Orleans homeless. And when I've heard you tell your story about this, whole part of your life before seems to be sort of where you see that being the lowest point what what got you out of that like you know I mean I know we don't have time to go through each step but what what was like the big turning point when you when you look back on things yeah I uh to to kind of cut a long story short I end up um making my way back to my mom's mom and dad's home in Wichita, Kansas. And so when my mom and birth father got a divorce, we moved in with them and I just love them, you know, desperately and dearly. They're, they're the best people on planet earth that I know, just faithful salt of the earth uh, kinds of people. And so I, I moved back there. I think everybody kind of felt like, um, you know, that was the safest place for me. And for the next uh, three years, I end up leaving their house, but I still have this like gaping 
uh, hole of just unhealed attachment pain. So even though this was the right kind of setup for me, it, it wasn't enough to heal my pain. And so within a handful of weeks, I'm out using again, leave their house, just go crazy. And I had the worst addiction you could have and survive for the next three years. You can't, you couldn't have been worse. Uh, maybe, maybe people can be at that level and survive longer. It was, and that's not a testament to anything to do with me. I was just a scumbag junkie loser. Um, and just, just, uh, went off the rails. So at my lowest, uh, I weighed 127 pounds. I'm about 230 today. Uh, hadn't eaten, you know, in, in months, my digestive system was just rotting. I, my hair was falling out. I was so dehydrated. I couldn't salivate to even swallow food. Um, and I had been living in a real rough area. And the day before uh, Thanksgiving in 2004, I get a call from a family member um, that, and I hadn't talked to family in a while. And this family member was like, hey, we're at uh, your nan and pops, my mom's mom and dad, and we would love to see you. I don't remember what I said. I don't even remember the phone call. But right when this family member said, we'd love to see you, I blacked out. And I come to, in the driver's seat of my car, about a half mile from my mom's mom and dad, and I black out again. And I come to a third time, and I am inside my mom's mom and dad's house, and I got like family members, they're there for Thanksgiving, like all around me, and they're like, Trent, are you okay? What's going on? And so uh, basically was, had OD'd, was um, in a terrible, terrible uh, uh, point in my life. And they call the hospital and they're telling them to watch my vitals. And so for the next few days, I'm just asleep. And they asked me kind of when I come to, if I would go to church with them. So uh, go to church with them in 2004. And um, hear this old country preacher teaching a lesson called being a contender for Christ. And he's uh, preaching from the book of Jude. And uh, Jude says, let us righteously contend for our faith. And to make that point, the preacher says, you know, there are two types of people on earth. There are pretenders and there are contenders. And um, pretenders are people who spend all of their time trying to look like a contender, but never really get there. And contenders are people who, who have really surrendered their life to Jesus Christ. And they're living his calling and his purpose and his plan for their life. And he's like, look at Mike Tyson. You know, he looks like a contender in the ring, but you can tell by his lifestyle outside of the ring that this guy's just a pretender. And in that moment, man, something happened deep in my spirit. And I thought to myself, that's me. You know, I'm just this big scumbag, junkie loser, never a drug dealer, never a gang banger, never a, I was, I was nothing. Literally, I was just totally empty and I hated it. I mean, I can't tell you how much I hated my life, my existence, myself. So the preacher 
asks everybody to close their eyes and bow their heads and raise a hand if they need prayer. And Kevin, it was like a, a whole like dozen or two dozen helium balloons suddenly were tied to my wrist. I bow my head and close my eyes. He said, raise your hand if you need prayer. And my hand starts to raise. I'm like looking at my hand, looking at this guy. And he's, he looks right at me. He says, if you're raising your hand for prayer, I'd like for you to come forward so I can pray. And man, it's like I, I got up as on autopilot. And to get to the front where he could pray for me, I had to go to the back, take a right and then another right and go down the aisle of shame, the center aisle of the church. And my uh, family was there, you know, it was Thanksgiving and um, extended family was there. So when I got up, my mom and stepdad, who's a wonderful guy, that's a big part of the story, but they thought that I was going to go smoke a cigarette. So they're like, man, he's leaving. And then here I come like down the center aisle. And the second I pass where they're sitting and they look at me and I look at them and I look at the guy on stage, the world just transformed, man. Um, my broken heart and my empty spirit and my pain was transformed and it, it's not that it was all completely healed you know in that moment but there was a, a miraculous transformation that happened that that set my life on a on a different course than that moment in the fourth grade when I first used drugs and alcohol set my life on and um, my life's never been the same guys Man, you know, I have heard you tell that a couple of times and I just, I sit on the edge of my seat, like captivated every time. I mean, I just, I love that story because mm -hmm. of how much hope and transformation are tied up in that. And there's something else that I want to highlight as part of that. And that is the, the connection piece, like it seems yeah, like yeah. there was a deep sense of connection to the divine that you can't explain that that lifted your arms and walked you down an aisle, you know, that you shouldn't, you shouldn't have done, you shouldn't have done that. Right? Like, <laughs> like that is all things in the body say, this is don't do this, but it, it seemed like there was a connection, a desire for connection that compelled you to go forward. And I, I, yeah. I love that. You know, Kevin, what, what's tough is even though I hated how my brain had learned to respond to my emotional pain, to try to promote some pain relief, it's what my brain knew. Yeah. And, and in that moment, there was some divine inspiration that happened and my brain was captivated by the potential uh, for something other than what I had been doing, you know, to relieve my pain. And it's way more miraculous than that. And it's way more supernatural. But I think that as simply as I could say it was the catalyst for my transformation. It was, a, it was finally feeling connected at the deepest level uh, to, to, to a God through his son, Jesus Christ, that loved me and could give me a chance to be something other than nothing. And there's mm -hmm. nothing more miserable or terrifying, you know, than that. You can't connect to anything if you're nothing. 
And so that connection was huge. The other thing that you and I have talked about some, and I'll mention this if we want to go here now, we can. What, what, what shortly after that moment was really heavy to work through is the feeling that no one could ever really understand what I had been through. And that just made me feel really lonely you know, and really isolated. And um, if I did not have a connection with my creator that was deep and profound and authentic through that first season, I don't know that I could have stayed clean. I, my, my woundedness is attachment related. And that attachment uh, to God, the father, through Christ, the son, provided a deep enough, authentic enough, meaningful enough connection to kind of help me sort of sort through, like I really do have to abandon a lot of relationships that felt, albeit artificially, really, really deep. And I've got to abandon this, this lifestyle that it for 10 years has been the only source of relief that I've known. And that's a big ask for people who are, are using drugs. Like, hey, we want you to disconnect yourself from everybody you feel deeply, albeit artificially connected to, which is major pain. And uh, by the way, we also want you to abandon the pain relief mechanism that might otherwise help you cope with the pain of those disconnections, so to speak. Really, that's, that's one of the things that makes... Uh, working in substance use disorders so complicated. We're asking people to abandon the, the things and the people that the most primal part of their brain is saying, your life depends on this stuff. We want to take a moment and thank Wellspring Process Groups for sponsoring today's episode. Wellspring is an initiative Paul launched at the beginning of 2021 that provides people with a safe place to process the experiences they're facing in life. Whether you're going through challenges or transitions, or if you need a safe group of people to share life with for a season, we invite you to join a Wellspring Process group. I've been in one of these groups and it's been a life-changing experience for me. I encourage you to go to the show notes right now and contact Wellspring to find out when you can join a process group for yourself. I, I wish that people in in churches and ministries were equipped in these ways more to understand what's going on there. Because I, I do feel like when the church is at its best, even, even you know, the American church is broken in all sorts of ways and need needs redemption and fixing. And and you know, we're we hope to be part of that um as God is fixing and redeeming us. Um People are, um, I feel like there's an inclination in the church and church people to be welcoming when someone's ready to, to say, hey, I don't want to live in this addiction anymore. I don't want to go in this particular way. And so there's open arms and reception and like, yes, welcome back home, you know, prodigal son kind of thing. Mm. But then you're left with, okay, what do we do now? And I don't feel like a lot of churches are equipped to help people with what you're saying is, 
I now have to actually go through and walk out the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. And the, I have these inclinations. I have these urges that you're not going to, that, that again, falls in that shame category, but this is where I'm at internally. Right. Paul, that's correct. I think, um, and it's hard, you know, this is such a long discussion, but the, the two churches that have had the biggest influence on me, um, the church that uh, I hear that message at in Wichita, Kansas, and uh, the church that I uh, ministered at for years, Monroe, what, what they were really, really, really doing right was unapologetically uh, telling people that the Lord Jesus Christ was, was the element of transformation that was missing in life, number one. And number two, they were willing to try their best to get in the trenches and love people on the front lines of life this side of heaven. Not that they each had this perfect, you know, uh, blueprint for how to do that, right? But, but they were willing to give it a shot. And for me, it was that willingness that was, that was critical because I didn't really even know what I needed, you know? Um, but their, their commitment to that in, in both cases uh, was, was so helpful. And um, I was at a point in my life too, where, you know, I kind of knew what to expect. Like I didn't expect anybody to do it for me. Um, I didn't expect anybody to uh, uh, do for me what I would, would not be willing to do for myself. And I also had looked everywhere this side of heaven for, for pain relief. And I knew it didn't exist on this side of heaven. And so one, one, because of the pain I endured, I knew it had to be supernatural. And I think in my journey, uh, God revealing that to me and me just seeking uh, him, it, it, that's that people will ask, how did you get to where you're at? I'm like, that's it, you know? Uh, so yeah, that's important. Well, you know, just in case the listeners didn't quite catch what the second church was, it was White's Ferry Road. You cut right. out for a second. So I just want to make sure that that got highlighted. But man, I think about Luke 7, when the woman who was likely a prostitute comes in and, you know, you've got these two people juxtaposed in this meeting um, that Jesus is at, at the Pharisee's house. And and she comes in and she, you know, that's, that's the story where she cries on his feet and she use her, uses her hair to dry his feet. And, and uh, man, I just think about how Jesus, that, that same type of interaction happens every time he encounters somebody who's in a place of brokenness. It's yeah. like, it's like he collects them to him in a, in a way that, that lets them experience the type of connection that you're talking about. And so like, like at the very most basic message that I see in the life of Jesus, it is that I am here to connect with you mm -hmm. at the deepest level, even when no one else is willing to. Um, and again, there's a whole other conversation that we can have about that. But, but I think that that is what is so highlighted in your story is that he met you in a very similar way. And as drastic as you fell into it, he pulled you out of it in a really drastic mm -hmm. way. And, and we're going to have listeners who 
they haven't had the same level. They haven't gone to the same depths, the same level of darkness. They, they may have just kind of meandered through in and out of darkness and, and dabbled in addiction or played with, with something that could be dangerous to them and, and not ever really like ended up on the street because of it. And to me, that in, in some ways could almost be a more miserable experience because it draws out that feeling of shame and, and disconnection and hiding that, that doesn't, you know, it's not like this big turning away from, there's nothing ever drastic enough for them to shift. And, uh, and I know so many people that live in that space that I'm like, man, um, you know, we, we've got to have space for all of those people to be able to be, to experience the connection of Christ in those places and uh, know how to walk them out of that. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? Like, mm -hmm. so they don't have to end up in a ditch one day, mm -hmm. but addiction, addiction plays so many games with us. It keeps us stuck. It keeps us grasped in that cycle and, um, and, and I think people have a hard time knowing how to get a pathway out, especially when it's not as drastic. What, what do you think about that, Trent? A couple of thoughts, and it, right, we could talk about this for a week and not cover it all, but I have kind of started in the last few years of simplifying what I often talk about, the two transformational forces in the universe, and I think that there are two. Um, maybe people would describe what I'm about to say differently, but ultimately I would say this is what they're saying. The first is love. And when I'm talking about love, I, I, I've been studying Ephesians 4, and uh, yeah, not to get too much into those weeds, but Paul's talking about unity in the church, and he says, with all humility and gentleness and patience, love each other. And that's the kind of love I'm talking about, which is, which is the love of God. That's, that's what Paul is referencing there. And so the love of God is the most transformational force in the universe. If there's a disadvantage in living, with, living in Western cultures that we're really saturated with that idea, and to the extent we're saturated with an idea, it loses its uh, uh, mysteriousness and, and significance, and maybe even um, power, not that the love of God is not powerful, but my sense of its nuclear power uh, is diminished because of how saturated we are with it. And so um, that, that's kind of what you're describing. Like, how do we, when people become so saturated with the idea of the unconditional love of God, that it seems commonplace, reignite an appreciation and awe uh, for its majesty. And I think that the second thing I would say is maybe one piece of that, which is pain. And that's ultimately what it took for Trent to transform. The pain I endured had to become so excruciatingly unbearable that I re-experienced the majesty of the concept of the unconditional love of God. And so I think one, one tough thing for like pastors, counselors, uh, lay ministers is how do you, how do you reignite 
an, an, an appreciation, a deep understanding for the majesty of the love of God, if the person you're mentoring or counseling or ministering to has a relatively comfortable lifestyle, and so pain will likely not be the catalyst for that transformation of thinking, so to speak. And I wish I had a great answer, gentlemen. I think that's where I'm at in my career right now. I was just praying and discerning. Interestingly enough, I think where I'm at at the moment with that idea is, is I would have said empathy. And again, by empathy, I think what I'm talking about is a, a connection with another human being at the deepest possible level, such that I have an actual understanding of what it has felt like to be them. And I think I would talk about this on a couple of different levels. I think in my work, if I could cultivate an experience that would help somebody reconnect with their inner self, because I think that's kind of the first step, that could be that moment of transformation. Maybe we go climb a mountain, maybe we do a six day backpacking trip. Uh, maybe we go uh, attend a symphony. I mean, something that's, that's of that order is, is usually how I'm thinking about trying to get somebody to reconnect with self. And I think a second way could be a, a real deep reconnection with a significant other maybe finishing some unfinished business with the parent uh, later in life or uh, saying words that have been left spoken for years with the spouse or making some profound amends. I think this side of heaven, those are kind of the nuclear or cataclysmic types of experiences that provide that connection either with self or other that, that reprogram uh, or reconstruct my sense of, of the overwhelming majesty of the love of God. And I, I think that's really good, Trent. And I, it makes me think that there is another type of pain that can be as excruciating as you, you describing being a loser, nothing, I am nothing. And I think the pain of mediocrity is something mm -hmm. that we just, we, we don't give a lot of attention to, you know? So, you know, I'm, I'm 41 now. Um, I spend a lot of time. You're uh, only 41, Kev. <laughs> yeah. I, I thought you were a lot older than that. Yeah. I look it's a lot older pepper in your beard, dude. <laughs> but, but I, I mean, I look at, I look at back on life and I think, ah, oh, what have I accomplished? Mm -hmm. What, what am I doing? You know, there's a lot of questions that come up in in midlife, that, um, I mean, I, those are motivators, you know, and I think when you have, when you've dabbled in addiction, whether it's pornography or, you know, abusing alcohol or, um, you know, any kind of, any kind of thing that you return to that causes shame, um, I do think there is some, at some point, there's a place to capitalize on being tired, being worn out by the mediocrity that life is handing you in that mm. space. And, um, but I, I want to highlight what I think, and th I think this can lead into just the last few minutes of talking about trauma bonds, things that you were describing mm. earlier, you know, but like, cause I think categorically, these are similar things that, that I stay in what I'm doing because of the things that anchor me to it. 
And what anchors me to my addiction, whether it's full blown or whether it's mediocre, is that it feel that I get a sense of relief from whatever I'm doing. It's a pressure valve release, right? And it, I'm also, there's environmental things that pull me back in, whether it's relationships, um, like, you know, maybe, maybe I'm not disclosing my feelings to my spouse. So I need a way to, to release the pressure of that relationship through some type of addiction or whether, or maybe I'm in a work situation that's constantly bombarding me. And I need, you know, once, once a week, I got to get slammed drunk to get, you know, to get a release or I, I need to go look at some pornography to have an escape, you know, like the, those are the types of things that anchor us to that. And maybe could you spend just a couple minutes, Trent, talking about those trauma bonds that we form with those, those types of things in our lives? Yes, man. And this is a big discussion too, but one of the things that makes people feel attached to other people is shared common experience. And the more uh, profound the experience, the greater the at least perception of that attachment, right? And so the drug culture offers people what feels like extremely profound experiences with other people. And the people that I experience those drug using moments with the more crazy, the more chaotic, the more clandestine, the more ashamed we felt artificially, uh, the, the more deeply attached, you know, we felt. So that, that in a sense, is an oversimplification of what we mean in, in the counseling profession when we talk about trauma bond. And so this is common with um, men and women in our, our armed forces who have like seen active combat side to side. That's such a profound experience, even if they don't know each other at all, right? They have no history together, that they share such a profound experience gives them this sense of this bondedness. And I'll say, I'll say something else too, that the, the profound experience of drug abuse is an artificial uh, counterbalance to the agony of the mediocrity and nominalism that addicts suffer from. And so that's another part of the allure is in a, in a, with the press of a button, people can feel like the master of the universe with unlimited potential for an hour, you know? And so I'm feeling that with another person and that creates this artificial sense of connectedness. And I think that too is a, is a complicating factor in helping people get and stay sober is Trent today has had some really profound shared common experiences with my wife and my kids and colleagues, you and I going to school together and just walking with each other and our families through that process. But Kevin, I'm not getting those kinds of experiences once a week or even once a month at times. And the drug culture offers that on a daily basis, usually multiple times a day. And so that's a much more hyperactive kind of rhythm. And it's much more chaotic. And so again, there's kind of this whole qualitative reset that has to happen over the course of, of recovery. It, what I have found is authentic attachment, which is what I've been looking for. Authentic attachment to God, 
a deeper awareness of my own inner world, which feels like a deeper connectedness to myself. And because of that, uh, the capability of deeply connecting with my wife, my kids, my extended family, my friends. Um, and, and that's the life that I was really looking for. I was just looking in all the wrong places. And the places I was looking were giving me just enough of an artificial sense of what I was looking for to keep its hooks in me. I know Paul wants to say something. And I, I just, one very small point that I want to make there is that you, you have all those external factors, but also the drugs themselves are hitting the receptors that, uh, that make you feel connected right at the same time. So it's, I mean, it is the perfect fabricated yeah. sense of intimacy uh, that leaves you feeling empty. Sorry, Paul, go ahead. No, I, I'm glad you said that because this is just such a rich conversation and topic. And I think it, it hits people that are deep into addiction in those places uh, that resemble in some way where you were Trent, but I think it also, it, there, there's this, we're, we're kind of flirting with this huge group of people that play around with these things. And we've, we've had other episodes that have talked about whether we call them distractions or addictions or different, different levels right. of using something to regulate my life and my emotions. And um, what does it look like to, <laughs> to have that in health and what does it look like for God's love to, to, to fill us up in a way that we don't need those other things and, and for our relationships to be strong enough to where that's where we're, we're finding the nutrients that we need to have health. And, and so all I can say is you've got us, you've opened up a can that is so, so good, Trent. And I'm so appreciative of your story. i I would absolutely love to talk about this more with you. This is our season finale for season two. So I'm so, wow. I'm happy that we got you in mainly just to, I feel like prime the pump of like 10 different things I'd love to talk about. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, Trent always brings this level of, of, uh, I don't know, you, you see it. He's got the research behind it. And he synthesizes that in a way that is able to connect it and make it make sense for people on an emotional heart level. And that is what that that's what it draws you to him. I mean, what he didn't tell you earlier is that when Mike Kellett asked him at White's Ferry Road, made the call, or Alan Robertson made the call and talked to to his counselor in, in Arkansas. And him and him and Mike Kellett came to Trent and said, Hey, we want you to preach. That happened because Trent was asked to teach a Bible class, a one-off class for somebody. And he did such a great job that they asked him to take the class over. And the, by the time I came and visited, it was like a Wednesday night class, I think, or maybe a Sunday morning class. And there were like over a hundred people in there listening to Trent talk. And if you ever heard him preach, you would know why. I mean, just listening to him talk here. So you think about how that is juxtaposed to the Trent that was losing his hair. He was 128 pounds. You know, he's living on the street. And, and somebody would look at him and say back then, like, man, you know, what are you doing with your life? You're throwing it away. And yet what is an obvious gift 
an, an amazing brain to make these connections that we just get a, a chance to listen to today. God knew what he had shaped in Trent. And, and now Trent gets to use that in some really awesome ways. And I love to see it. And um, I've had him come do some marriage seminars at my church and will continue to do so. And um, I'm still waiting for him to invite me to do something, but I think they just want to hear him talk. So, uh, man, hey, I, even a broken clock is right twice a day, gentlemen. And it's, it's been a joy. Uh, getting to do what I've been able to get to do. God's just shown a lot of favor and connected me with a lot of awesome people that uh, have helped pull me up to their level of thinking and, and discipline and effort. So Kevin, you're one of those guys. Uh, thankful for your friendship over the years. Man, excited about this podcast. Hoping it encourages some people. Been an absolute honor to get to share with you guys today. Yeah, Thanks, thank you Trent. so much. Thanks, Trent. It's good to, good to meet you virtually here. And for everybody that's listening, we're so thankful that you're, you tuned in and are listening today. We'll have some resources for you in our podcast notes. And we just want you to know you are not alone. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode and that Trent's story gives you hope in whatever you're facing right now. If you have questions or thoughts on this topic, we encourage you to email us using the address in our show notes. There, you'll also find some helpful links and resources. Also, on our notes page is an opportunity to support the people suffering from the war in Ukraine. Please check out Eastern European Missions through the link in our notes and explore their options for direct support of people in Ukraine and refugees in surrounding countries. Special thanks to Cheyenne Metters for producing our music, and thank you to Wellspring Process Groups for sponsoring this episode. If Creative for Connection has been helpful for you, please drop a review on whichever podcast service you're using, and please share with your friends and anyone you think might appreciate these conversations. We'll see you next time.